to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a huge guest. Brick Smith start of the fall of Bricks and the Extricated, sorry, easy for me to say, and of course of Adult Net. More on that in a second, and it is an incredible episode. We also talk about... Uh, well, well, I'll talk about it. She's got a brand new book out. I'll get into all that in one moment. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to DamienAbraham.com. Uh, there's an email address there. You can also find me on various forms of social media, at Left for Damien on those things. Go to Facebook.com if you're a Facebook user, and you can like the Turned Out of Punk Facebook page. We post things that get sent into the show as far as, like, flyers and photographs and all sorts of other cool stuff on there. It's run by my brother, Tristan Abraham. You can send him a message. He can get the message to me. You can also check out the turnedoutapunk.tumblr.com page where we're going to be posting a lot of that same sort of stuff that gets posted on the Facebook page. But I think it's going to be a little easier to navigate if you're going through some of the older episodes that you can find in the Turned Out of Punk archives, which can be found at iTunes.com, uh, iTunes, your iTunes page. Uh, it's just in the Turned Out of Punk feed. Uh, check out some of the old episodes we have, a lot of amazing stories with a lot of cool people. Also in that feed, you will see that we have some other podcasts. There's Turned Out of Punk Footnotes, which is done by myself and my good buddy and your good buddy, Chris O'Toole. Each week we dissect a Turned Out of Punk episode and talk about discography stuff. And there's a very active mailbag on that show. So if you enjoy being involved in a community around this show, <laughs> that would be the place to do it. And, uh, yeah, it's fun. It's a fun show. There's also, speaking of fun shows, a brand new show done by my good buddy Tom Bryan and I called Clobberin' Time. Clobbering Time, it's a wrestling podcast. It's going to be Tom and I talking about wrestling. This week it's going to be some maybe a little outdated conversation about <laughs> WWE pay-per-views that are coming up. But, you know, it's still fascinating. And also what's going to be awesome about that episode, what is awesome about that episode, is it features Nikki Nothing from the band, nothing on it, discussing his, uh, I guess, early days of going to ECW shows and also ECW wrestlers um, partying with uh, people in hardcore bands. It's a fun, fun episode. I cannot stress that enough. And then actually the previous episode to that features Gerard Cosloy of Matador Records fame, and it is equally as awesome talking about going to like WrestleMania one and then going to a progress wrestling show. Gerard's a deep head. It's a, it's a good show for uh, wrestling music fans. I think that is that for that. Oh, also if check out, if you like, you know, stuff about music and wrestling and if you like stuff about cannabis or if you like it, all that stuff, check out the stuff I write over there at vice.com. There's also videos and things that I do on there as well. On to today's show today on the show. It's a big one. Brick Smith start of the fall of adult net, you know, the fall of probably more, you know, critically well-regarded, but I think we can all agree adult net has a much less problematic, uh, history to unpack. And, uh, I bring that up because having read this book, the rise, the fall and the rise that bricks has just written, it really, um, makes you rethink where you put your heroes in this world. And I think it's something that we all have to face in 2016 is that many of our heroes are in some cases, not good people in some cases, fucking monsters. And so 
Brooks has written an unbelievable book detailing her time in the fall and also just her incredible life. I go into this in some detail in this show, but this is one of my favorite books of this year. Uh, it's an enjoyable read. At times, it's a, a hard read as well, but I, I really recommend you check it out. It's on Faber and Faber, and I really got to say thank you to Shara Zavell. Um, I hope I said that right. Zavell. I've, I've Hopefully I said that right. Um, I've never actually talked to her, but she's written me emails and made this all kind of come together. And so thank you for reaching out because this was awesome. And thank you to Brix because Brix is fucking so cool. Sonic Youth wrote a song about her. That's how cool she is, you know. This is one of those episodes that I am so happy I got to do because I did not know Brix prior to this. And, man, I was a fan before. I was definitely a fan after reading her book, and I'm even more of a fan after getting a chance to talk to her. I'm not going to ramble on any more about this, but I do have one correction to get to. She talks about a punk band on her street that featured two brothers. I think she may be talking about Chicago band Strike Under. I'm not 100% sure uh, if I'm wrong. I'm sorry, but if I'm right, it's Strike Under. Anyway, <laughs> please sit back relax and enjoy Brick's Smith start on Turned Out a Punk. Bricks, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk to me because my gosh, your book is, uh, you know, I was telling you off air how much I loved it. It's right now, like probably going to be my favorite book this year. I think oh it's my God. <laughs> a phenomenal read. It's an incredible, like I know people have, sadistic people have said to me, oh, you should write a book, you know, about your life, you know, playing in bands and doing this stuff. And I just don't have a memoir worthy life. And you definitely have had a memoir worthy life. So, uh, but this will be one that'll probably be not too much interfering with the rest of the book, because this will be one that kind of details more or less just the early part of your story. And then Hopefully you'll come back for a part two and we can do other parts of your life in the future. But uh Real, okay. <laughs> uh but yeah, no, anyway, big fan of your your obviously your work in AdultNet and, and the fall and stuff, but I had no idea that it went back and your roots run this deep. So I'm gonna start off this thing the way I start them all off, which is Bricks, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yes. I, exactly. I remember exactly when. I was a teenager, um, probably like young teenager, like maybe 13. Yeah, I was like a young teenager. And I was like, uh, it was one of the stints when I was living at, in LA at my dad's house. And I remember um, watching, I think it was the news. Mm -hmm. And it, they had a story coming over from England about punk rock. And it was showing the sex pistols and people wearing safety pins and this loud sort of sort of cacophonous raucous um <laughs> uh completely free music like fueling anger and sort of echoing the political upheavals that were going on over in England and i remember seeing they 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 showed the sex pistols and the clash mm -hmm. and there was some i just looked at it and i was like oh my god because it it was um 
so much more brutal than anything I'd ever heard. It was so much more brutal than rock and roll, and it just took it to a whole nother level. And it was a little bit scary to me, but I was utterly fascinated. Mm-hmm. And um, then, of course, I began to hear more and more and more about punk, and then I began to really get into the music and hear about the American punks like the Ramones, you know, and Blondie and uh, – who else? I mean, there were just so many. I mean, I don't know. He just began with those guys and just went on. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then of course, I got then I then I got really into the music and um especially the music of the Clash. So by then, uh, which was maybe like a year later, I was living in Chicago by then with mm-hmm. my mother and my stepfather, and I was sort of one of those kids that didn't really. I was I wasn't exactly weird. Well, I guess I was weird. <laughs> but um, you know, I wasn't like one of the super popular girls or like the ones that sort of conformed to everything. I was really sort of artistic and on the sort of edge. So I had a kind of group of slightly misfit arty friends mm-hmm. and we used to hang together. We went to University of Chicago Laboratory School, which is like we used to say that we were part of an experiment. <laughs> but um probably gone wrong but um so we used to sort of be you know push the boundaries and we decided to have punk rock parties after school um because we were so into it so we'd play music after school at somebody's house and like pogo around the kitchen or the room that we were in and then we gave each other nick punk nicknames and mine was brixton Mm -hmm. so that's how i got my name yeah, it's funny. You could do a whole book just about your education because, like, <laughs> oh, which sorry, which was from the guns of Brixton yeah, by of course. the Clash. Yeah, there we go. sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to cut you off there. Of String course. it together, yeah. Brick. String it together. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but it's like you could do a whole book just about your education, like the schooling and the places you went to school and the people that were in your classes. It's like it could be a book of, amongst its probably unto itself. Probably, yeah, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> um, but you, you kind of like, I guess that time that you saw that news clipping, is that before or after you went to that Runaways Ramon show? I guess that would have been before, right? I think it was right before, yeah. But I never went to the Runaways Ramones because my dad wouldn't Yes, me. of course. Sorry, before you tried, I should say. Sorry. Yeah, but my girlfriends did and brought me back a t-shirt, you know. Yeah. I was I've... gutted. I was Gutted, especially to miss the Runaways. Of course, I went on to see the Ramones so many times mm-hmm. and get to know them all. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it was the Runaways because they lasted a very finite period of time, and um, they they were so inspirational to me as a female musician. And if only I had seen them and their energy, it probably would have like lit the rocket of desire ever more quickly inside me. Absolutely. Well, you know, like such an amazing band. And and now I think they finally get kind of their proper place in music as far as like the respect. But where would you have heard them as as a kid? Because you would have been super young at that point. I think they played them on K Rock. Oh yeah, that would yeah definitely. Yeah, and I think I listen. I think Rodney Bigenheimer was really into them. Yeah, and Rodney Bigenheimer was really really pro female musicians. There was something. There's something a little a little creepy about him. <laughs> I'm glad, I asked. I'm glad someone said it. Yes, it having having been to his house, yeah. me once. Me and Susanna Hoffs went to his house to do. An, once when I was playing with her, we were doing. We did an interview with him, and we went to his house. And I am telling you. It was I had I was so unprepared. First of all, he was a fascinating character, Rodney. I mean, he is great. Like he is so pro women musician and 
such a fanboy. I mean, the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate fanboy. But he, um, <laughs> he used to eat his dinner in LA every night. I think it was at Cantor's. Yeah. And every night he would eat the same meal. And he'd always be in the same booth with the same meal every single night, like total OCD. And um, so one time we went to his house to do this interview and his house, I'm telling you, was stuffed from floor to ceiling with memorabilia, just stuffed like cardboard cutouts of bands and records piled up and books and posters and promos and everything. And there was a small little pathway cut through all the memorabilia to get to him. <laughs> to his his kitchen was unusable to get to his bedroom and I remember somehow me and Susanna I think I kind of remember there was a bunk bed but I don't know if I'm making that up or not <laughs> but I remember us like, just kind of looking at each other going oh my lord almighty and and he was just had this like crazy like Johnny Ramone haircut with the bangs curled under you know mm-hmm. and dro- I drove like um I think it was a GTO and it's a fascinating character, but yeah, that's where I would have heard it, Rodney. Absolutely. Like, I think in another path, that would be me. Like, if I take another <laughs> path, <laughs> I sit in a room now, probably with an unhealthy amount of records surrounding me, uh, and, and I just think, oh my gosh, if I hadn't gotten married and had children, that would probably be I. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the, here's the thing, Damien. Yes. You love records so much. So much. And being surrounded by what you love mm-hmm. is a great thing. It's living your passion. So he was living his passion. He was being completely true to himself without any kind of like filter or something, you know, not that the wife is a filter, like, of course. No, no. Life is about a balance, but I actually think it's really great to love something so much that you're surrounded by it. Oh, absolutely. And those are the people that, that I, you know, I look to for being, those are the, the people that, you know, tell me about the bands or like get that information. And those are the people, like there's a special place in our society for the obsessives. Oh and I, yeah. I'm definitely not looking down upon them. But I think no. it, it, it is uh, – I find it um, – there's that scene in the documentary about Rodney where – Oh, I didn't see that. I that, never saw that. Oh, you have to see that oh, documentary. what's it called? I think it's called The Mayor of Sunset Strip. No way. What is – where can I find it? Like Netflix or Amazon? Probably Amazon. I, I'm sure it was on Netflix at a time, but I don't know if it's still up there. But oh, it my is, God. I absolutely uh, have to get that. Well, I'm not going to tell you – I was about to go on a, a thing about it. You should watch it because it definitely – I think it, it, it really – gets to the same point that you're making. So it's funny that you haven't seen that. And now once you see that, you're going to be like, wow, I was pretty spot on. Okay, good. So, uh, but anyway, I, yeah, I love, uh, love the compilations and love all the stuff. What other, were there other LA bands you were hearing at the time on his show? Like, were you hearing the quick or Zolar X or any of those bands? No, didn't know them. Okay. I was, I was kind of like, you know, that was a little bit, I wasn't quite awake yet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're <laughs> because, young. Because, yeah, I was young, but I, so I was into um, David Bowie and Kiss, mm-hmm. I liked. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was really into David Bowie, Zeppelin. Um, I had a very good school friend when I was quite young, like maybe it was like um, ninth grade or eighth grade. And uh, she was completely obsessed with Kate Bush and Queen. Okay. And she she was a musician and um so so I had a I had a long stint with Queen and Kate Bush too. <laughs> well yeah, you have a, you have a story. You saw Queen, right? Like twice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's obviously 
I don't know, one of the greatest live bands I could imagine ever. Never got to see him, but I could imagine. I mean, what, I mean, like the best front man ever. Like I learned so much from watching him, watching Freddie Mercury in terms of sort of controlling the audience and projecting from the stage, projecting and like literally, you know, there would be, he would be in a massive stadium, but then you felt like he was looking at you, you know, it was quite incredible. And he really channeled the music and it just, he put on, he was a showman and it was incredible. Mm-hmm. What and what? Oh my God! Yeah, so let's not forget Freddie. No, absolutely, and that's one of the things that really comes across in your book. And maybe, maybe there was a different kind of t- point, and maybe I just didn't pick it up in the book. But you never really seemed like you threw out that music in the same way that you know. There's that famous scene in Twenty Four Hour Party People where they're tearing the old posters, including David Bowie, off the wall once they mm-hmm. see the Sex Pistols. But you never did that. Really. Oh no! I mean, I was not. Um, I wasn't really part of a musical tribe, you know. I mm-hmm. just loved everything that spoke to me. I, I mean, I'm just trying to think. There, I, I'm thinking that I, I was a part of. I did swing in and out of fashion tribes, mm-hmm. and of course, the fashion was influenced for me by the music completely. So there was a point where I was so into the Clash, and I was also into the Stray Cats. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of a strange sort of rockabilly moment. Uh, I, I, that was, that was actually during my first band. Oh, Rockabilly. Okay. Yeah. That was a mixture of that plus a little bit of Echo and the Bunnymen and, um, Joy Division. Yeah. So it was kind of like this sort of dark Northern English thing (laughs) crossed with like a little bit of Rockabilly, you know, a weird hybrid. So I was sort of that. And I, you know, I remember selling my clothes. I don't know if I, if I told you, if I said this in the book, but when I went to Bennington College, mm-hmm. we used to set me and my friend Lisa used to sell our fancy clothes that our moms would buy us. Okay. And, and, uh, for like money to buy musical instruments or other things that I shouldn't talk about on the radio. <laughs> and then. And oh, it's then a podcast. Would, you can talk about whatever you want. We can swear. It's just, we're, we're oh, on yeah, the no, internet. Mu- musical in- instruments and substances. Yeah, yeah. And then we would, um, <laughs> then we would, um, uh, go to the Salvation Army in Bennington, Vermont, and buy a whole new wardrobe of trench coats, raincoats, <laughs> uh, pointed boots to dress like Ian McCulloch, you know, yeah, and like yeah. walk around with our heads down, like just wearing raincoats. Yeah. That's awesome. So I guess like just back uh, before you moved to Chicago, did you get, did you, what was your first kind of show that you ever went and saw? Like- um, my very first um show was actually in Chicago outside of Chicago <laughs> my my mom took me to this concert i think the place is called Ravenia okay uh, and it's the kind of an outdoor amphitheater where people picnic and watch music yeah. listen to music and watch the act and my first show was a double bill of the carpenters and neil sadaka wow I I'm <laughs> big fans of the Carpenters on this show. Everyone who I think we're all fans of them. <laughs> well, Karen Carpenter was one of my first inspirations, and in actually seeing a woman playing drums mm-hmm. um, probably unconsciously changed my view of women. You know, made me made it seem like you could do anything. 
Because like there's a woman playing drums, so cool. And so that was my first show. But I I was really young then. But I begged my mom to go and see the Carpenters because also their her voice was just the it was like literally like angels singing. And the songs were so catchy and melodic. And talk about like writing a hook, you know, and having things that were just so beautifully infectious that sort of shaped the soundtrack of your life. It was the Carpenters. Mm -hmm. And then the first rock concert I ever saw was Aerosmith with Rick Derringer. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> because I, I loved Dream On. Yeah. That's, yeah. What, like, you know, it's crazy because, like, you know, you hear his voice on that. It's a different guy singing. Yeah. It's, it's like they must have replaced him at some point. Um, or the drugs, probably the drugs. But I don't know. Maybe he was, maybe he was in a different mental state. Maybe he was like, maybe he was channeling and a different voice was coming through him from the collective consciousness. He was connecting with something else, you know? Yeah. Like there's, there's that moment, you know, not, not that I think (laughs) anyone's ever made this comparison between these two bands, but discharge where Cal from discharge just changes his vocal style. And it was like, it's just like, I guess, you know, different place. Well, people find different voices as, as you grow as a singer, I think you, and you, and you amass all sorts of different adventures and life experiences you can draw from different places within yourself and you become more free Mm -hmm. as well like i i mean for me during like the adult nap phase and everything i sang like a baby i sang like a child like breathy controlled um babyish I never, ever let my voice run free. I never belted. Mm. I couldn't, I, I didn't allow myself to be vulnerable in a truly open way. And, and of course now p- people say I have a, com- like I was working with Stephen Duffy on the weekend from the Lilac time oh. and he was like, Bricks, can I ask you something? He goes, can you sing louder now than you ever could? What the hell's going on? <laughs> it's like a different person. So I, it's so possible that, you know, throughout your life you change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, as you say, you get, you get those experiences and that shows in your voice, mm-hmm. you know, like as, as, and yeah. Um, so at what, at what point do you go to your first punk show? Oh man, that, now that's a good one. I'm trying to think what my first punk show was. I think they all came in a cluster. Mm-hmm. So I was living definitely in, Chicago. But you'd already been, and, you, you already kind of were a fan of the genre at this point. Like, were you aware of the kind of LA scene that was going on? Like, were there other kids in your high school, like older kids, I guess, that were going to the LA punk stuff? Um, there must have been, but I think the, when I really became aware of it was in Chicago yeah, okay. more. I mean, I was aware mm-hmm. of it in LA, but when I really started to go, go out, and that was because, um, that was because the, the University of Chicago, which was – I went to the high school that was connected to the university, would bring over the bands from England to play at oh. the university or in the gym. So that is where a whole cluster of things happened. So I remember saying – and I know they're not punk, and but they were pretty – raw at the time. U2 on their very first American tour. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ramones. um Bow Wow Wow, um, Adam and the Ants. I mean, they're not and and yeah, the Ramones. I suppose was my very first punk show. Yeah, if you're but, gonna, but that American punk. And then but all those other bands you mentioned are definitely like that's that energy at that time. 100%. Well, I lump I lump them all together. I mean, I wasn't like really differentiating who was a punk purist and who wasn't. I was accepting hard edge, new wave, um, 
you know, anything like that, anything that was really pushing the boundaries out of mainstream rock and roll as punky or people that incorporated the fashion as well. Mm -hmm. Like I, I wasn't, you know, I I don't, I never saw the sex pistol. So that was sad, but I heard them a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think they, they, they had like that. That's the thing that makes that band, I think so perfect in, in my eyes is that they had that perfect little brief run and, and that's it. Like that was that's done. Oh, Iggy, Iggy, we can't forget about Iggy. Oh yeah, you saw he, you saw the suit or Iggy? I, I saw I saw Iggy, and um, he was incredible. Yeah, what album would that have been on? I'm trying to now. I'm trying to think in my head. Like I can't remember. Pretty brick by brick, I guess. Right? Like yeah, yeah. Well, that would that would been amazing to see Iggy at that point. Um, that was in, yeah. So I guess like what were some of the local Chicago bands? Were there any that you saw at that time, like DA or any of those bands, uh, Subverts? No, I'm, I didn't. The only people I saw were like this, these boys that played in my neighborhood that were two brothers. Mm-hmm. And I can't even remember what the name of their band was. But by that point, we just – Instead of to, instead of going to see, cause remember in Chicago, I was underage and yeah. the drinking age is 21. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very difficult to go. The only way I could go is if they were playing at the school or sometimes they had concerts for like younger people. Mm-hmm. So well, eventually we just started playing it ourselves, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you, before you do, you go to, you go to England, right? Before that at, at a point, you go to London. No, after that, after I I finished high school. So I graduated in 1981 from high school and I, um, my parents took myself and my two stepsisters to Europe that summer. So Mm -hmm. I, the first time I've been away out of America and we went to London first, we went to London, Paris and Venice and then back to London. So we went to London and I remember the wheels touching down on the tarmac at Heathrow. And I got this feeling came over me, the weirdest feeling, Damien. And I turned to my mother and I said, mom, this is my home. This is where I'm going to live. And like, <laughs> like within, I don't know how long it was, two years I was living there. Wow. And it's so funny because you identify so strongly with LA. And if you think of two places that are more diametrically opposed, <laughs> I can't think of it. Well, I guess they're both sprawling metropolises. Yeah, I mean, I don't, there's, there's nothing similar about either one, but there's, I, I mean, maybe there is, maybe there's different kinds of energy. Whatever it was, I knew I was meant to end up in England, Mm -hmm. but LA shaped me. So I was meant to bring the sunshine here, you know, a bit of California (laughs) sparkle to whatever I did. But for some reason, I just knew this is where I needed to be. And maybe it was because I loved the music so much. And maybe it was because it just felt, so not exotic that's the wrong word but cool it was just mm-hmm. so cool it was so much cooler than america to me i can't tell you mm-hmm. um i love the culture i love the history of it you know the fact that everything was so old because in la there really is it's really new you know <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah the, <laughs> like oh, like that's the well europe in general like old is like thousands of years yeah <laughs> that's what i'm talking i'm talking about deep deep history yeah whereas in like yeah it, it's it's a it's a very different thing unless you're talking about of course like first nations people who have mm-hmm. a much older history in north america mm-hmm. so oh yes but, well but we yeah. love them yeah in, <laughs> yeah they're not treated very well unfortunately and well, historically um at all thick what yeah you, 
Um, at, so I guess you come back from that trip. When you're in Europe, did you go and buy music or, or buy records and clothes? I guess right. Like yeah. Was were there? I'm trying to think. Some of the sex wasn't around at that point, right? Like that. Yeah, so, I went there. Yeah, it was there still. Yeah, you mean are you talking about Vivian Westwood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That story. Yeah, on King's Road. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, basically, even before I went there in 1981, when Marvin, my stepfather slash now adopted father, mm-hmm. um, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> basically, I said, oh, my God, when, when you go, because he was going to England for work. And I said, can you get me some pirate boots or some pirate clothes? Because I was really into Adam and the Ants yeah. and Bow Wow Wow. And, and I mean, I loved Annabella. I mean, I just thought she was so great and such a, you know cool girl i just i love the whole look so yeah he brought me back a whole pirate outfit that's awesome (laughs) a whole you know original of course i don't have it but um then when i came back to england i it was then it was really i remember in 1981 the pound was really strong against the dollar Mm -hmm. and um so things were expensive and like we were on holiday so we were kind of on a bit of a budget like you know it wasn't super luxurious, but it, you know, we had to watch it. But yeah. I remember saving up my money and buying again on King's Road a red leather jacket, just like Chrissy Hind wore. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That was the thing I treated myself to. <laughs> did you go, do you get to see any bands when you were over there? I guess you're on holiday, so it's kind no of no way. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I tried, you know. Um, I tried, but I was like with my – it was like impossible that you were with your family and it was yep. like you just you did family like kid things, you know. Oh, yes. I know what it's like. Now with my kids, <laughs> it's even it's even more difficult when it's somewhere. <laughs> Wait. How old are your kids? I have uh, seven, four, and ten months. Right. Okay. I'm in Young the family. Yeah. yeah. I'm in the thick of it. <laughs> um, so I guess you come back from that – that trip of from England, um, and you is did you go right to New York or? Remember, I had a summer. Uh, the, Chicago, the, so yes, that was yeah. yeah, that was the same um, year. That was the same summer that uh, Princess Diana and Prince yes. Charles married. So um, I came home, and I remember watching the royal wedding on the TV and wishing that I was there to see it. And then, um, and then it's I funny because that's such a different relationship to the. Sorry, not to cut you off, but with no, it's fine. the Royals as as a lot of punk people had at that point. But I, I was an Anglophile. Yeah, that's true. I wouldn't define myself as a punk person. I mean, yes, I would. I was punky in my attitude and in my dress and in what I like to listen to. But at the same time, I was an Anglophile, and I remember I didn't have the anger in me because real the real punks were just so disillusioned with you know the british punks it was all a political movement and it was just like what was going on they were just their society was crumbling they were so angry about you know the life circumstances and that got channeled into the music the american punks were different Mm -hmm. yeah they were disaffected and messed up you know but it didn't have that same driving sort of socio economic thing happening that makes any sense yeah i guess it's like you know like american punk is is defined on on the broad scale by the ramones and yeah and in england it's kind of defined on the broad scale by the clash and the pistols and you know obviously one is much more overtly political Mm -hmm. and and, or sorry two i should say yeah Uh, but actually speaking of the ramones and you talked about all the times you saw one story that you allude to is vomiting on joey ramone's leg uh, Which I did. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I guess, like, what was it like finally getting to meet the Ramones? When did you finally get to see them, I should say? Well, I saw them in Chicago when oh, I yeah, was still right, in high school. Yeah. And I saw them a bunch of times. And I somehow, I don't know how, got to meet them then. And I remember, I don't, I, I you know, I think... Johnny gave me a guitar pick that said the Ramones on it, which I treasured. And now I have, I mean, even when I was in the fall, I have my own picks that said bricks and I give them to people. And that was a direct result of Johnny Ramone giving me his guitar pick. That's awesome. Yeah. So I met them then and, you know, I was of course a shy teenager and, you know, but um, it was amazing and they just were they they were so loved. They were actually really nice guys. Like Joey was actually super nice. Mm -hmm. Um, he looked like a human spider. I always looked at him and thought, you look like a daddy long legs, you know, <laughs> come to life as a man. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I guess I was, when did that happen with, oh yeah, I was at Bennington College and we, I had formed a band with my girlfriend Lisa and it was called Band of Drotsing. And one weekend we went, used to go to New York for the weekends and we were very, very, badly behaved Damien I have to tell you sometimes we go to New York with nowhere to stay and no money and just fend for ourselves and yeah I mean you just wouldn't do that now I mean we knew we were doing bad then I would say it's even sketchier then than it is now maybe I mean all the alphabet city was like one of our one of our classmates got murdered wow so uh, that was bad he ended up in a trash bag but um so but one time we were Oh, I know what it was. So um, I don't want to drop anybody into it, but <laughs> one of our friends li- lived in – you know, he was based in New York, and he was from a very wealthy family, mm-hmm. and they had an apartment on Park Avenue, like a 16-room apartment, wow. and uh, he dabbled in heroin. And, of course, heroin was hugely romanticized, and I'd never tried I was terrified of trying it because, you know, I was always told how addictive it was, and you would see junkies, and, you know, <laughs> I was warned my whole life. But at the same time, I was fascinated because of, like, the whole music culture, and it seemed like all the musicians I really loved really liked that. And I thought, well, life is for living, and I think I should try everything once. So I kind of, like – harped on to him about it and I said what's it like what's it like and finally one night he said oh just shut up and try it so I did and I I took I snorted a little line and I'm telling you I felt vile I've never felt so sick in my life mm-hmm. I felt disgusting and so we ended up going I think it was either dance interior or peppermint lounge I can't remember which one of them yeah and when I got there, I was sick as a dog. And I remember throwing up in this trash bin and Joey Ramone was standing right next to me. So, and his leg was right next to the tr- And I think, I don't know if he held my hair back or not. Um, oh, I know that night I, I, we had gone out with this guy who was one of the producers of Joan Jett and the Black. We were just, I was just on a roll, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Teenage rampage. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so I did throw up on his leg. Wow. So I guess like when – He wife, wasn't phased. He'd seen it all before. Yeah, I imagine by – especially by that <laughs> point. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably seen it all in his band by that point even. Yeah, and then I, I never did it again ever. Yeah. So it got – it was like it, one one night of sick and that was it. No way. Not fun for me. <laughs> no. But I guess that's the best way to have that one experience with that drug. Cause, Pretty much. Because there's – you know, if it was really good, it you know it might be a horrible other – Reality. Yeah, exactly. That's right. You know, 
I mean, thank God maybe I wasn't in that much pain at yeah. that point. Yeah, absolutely. Where where did you kind of go – like when you're, sorry, when you're going into these New York shows, are you kind of seeing – bands like is the no wave stuff happening at that point or uh, hardcore yeah. I guess, is happening too hardcore was happening um hardcore was really happening and um, i was beginning to be really aware of that um and yeah we were just seeing everything that we could see you know we went to cbgb's a lot that yeah. was still there and that was really quite a scene and max's kansas city and i you know also i had a quite a strong obsession with Edie Sedgwick, with her mm-hmm. style, with her story, with her history, just the way, just the way that she looked. And so I really, I emulated her with my hair and my makeup and my clothes and anything that Edie Sedgwick and Andy Warhol would do, I would basically <laughs> try and like hit the high points, you know? Yeah. So they always talked about like Max's Kansas City and stuff like that. So anything that I read about, I'd go to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you brought up hardcore, which is, Definitely my favorite wheelhouse to be in, especially that early New York hardcore stuff. What were some of the bands that – were there any bands that spoke to you in particular? Mm, would you consider Black Flag hardcore? Oh, oh, oh my god, yeah. Yeah. They were Maybe the guests Black- last week on the show. No way. Yeah, well, Flag. Okay. Like uh, it was Keith, uh, Bill, Chuck, and Dez. Yeah, they – I love them. Oh, Absolutely. Um, Bad brains, oh, maybe hardcore. Absolutely, all the bads. <laughs> Were you going to uh, the A Seven Club? I went to A Seven awesome. once. Oh. <laughs> um, it must have been. But, it's. I hear terrifying stories about, like, obviously what that was like and going to shows there, being down in the Alphabet City where it was. But do you remember that show at all? Like any bands that played? No. Okay. I didn't, you know, there's a lot of things that are blurred, but I do Absolutely. remember like slam dancing and mosh pitting <laughs> and things like, like, and just being like ter- really scared I was going to be crushed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm little. So, um, you know, it was kind of sc- scary. And, but yeah, we, but we loved it. It was exciting, really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> exciting. Did you ever see Agnostic Front or um, Abused no. or Urban Waste or? Urban Waste. I don't think I ever saw any of those. You know who I love? And I don't think it, I don't think you'd consider it hardcore, but, um, oh, I was going to, no, that's not, I was going to say the gun club. Oh, I love the gun club. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, absolutely. It's, but I really, we really, when I was in Bennington, we listened to the gun club all the time mm-hmm. and I just love, and the Minutemen, and we love Jeffrey Lee Pierce. Mm-hmm. And, um, Later on, when I was in the fall, we toured extensively with the Gong Club. Yeah, there must have been – that would have been a, probably a pretty heavy time for Jeffrey, I would imagine. Yeah, we – and Jeffrey and Rami and I think Kid Congo Powers was Whoa. in it then. And, um, what, what record did what you guys tour with? Cramps? I, can't, I can't remember what it was. You know, Miami everything or? is – maybe – and um, I, but it went on for a long time. Like we, they always put on the same bill as um the Gun Club or the Cramps mm-hmm. or the Bad Seeds mm-hmm. or Unsterzende Neubauten. Yeah, what an awesome scene where every band, like you know, obviously you, yourselves included, sounds so different. Yeah, but is all kind of got a weird, sinister vibe. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, and also Bjork, when she was in the Sugar Cubes. Sugar Cubes. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So we did – that was such a – such reminding me of what such a great time it was mm-hmm. and such amazing bands to tour with. And sometimes they opened for us. Sometimes we opened for them. We did this um, – a double headline tour with Nick Cave um, through Germany. 
where one time I think we were playing in Hamburg and they had oversold the venue. And uh, when we got to the venue, there was a riot going on, <laughs> and um, because they they couldn't get in, and all those German punks, they were really hardcore in their yeah. black leather, and oh my good God Almighty, and they were like rolling burning tires down the road, and I was like, dude, what we're we gonna do? And I think somehow I remember the Swans being there too. Oh. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, but they're, they're they're another band that fits right in, like to that that scene of these bands that are all like like yeah, so different sonically, but just vibe wise, kind of all same similar kind of feel. Yeah, I mean those promoters were good in those days, but mm-hmm. maybe they had a great smorgasbord of bands to choose from. Yeah, it seems so more exciting then than it is now. Am I wrong? No, I, I like I don't know, and and I I don't think I don't think it's nostalgia because I wasn't around to see it. So I'm looking okay, at this. Good. Okay. I'm, looking, I'm looking at this from like a different perspective. But like I would also put like you know early Sonic Youth in there too. Oh yeah, yeah. And and like and and all of um and Pussy Galore in America. Oh, we played with them. They were great. That's I love awesome. Them. Yeah, John, yeah, John's been on the show before, um, and I, I, they're oh, an incredible band, an absolutely phenomenal band. Well, I guess like one thing that like yeah, does, is it the promoters putting these shows together, or is it like a mutual respect for these bands? Like, how was this scene kind of happening? Well, so I, I had nothing to do with any of those decisions. We yeah. just, we just did what was put in front of us. And yeah. We were like, we'd go on tour. And then of course we became friends with everybody because, you know, we're locked together. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, it was just fun. Mm-hmm. It was so fun. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes me, I mean, there were times when we, when Marsha was in the band, mm-hmm. Marsha Schofield, and we would just like, we just had the best time. We would just roll our eyes. She was wilder than I was. Yeah. By then I was, um, not, not wild like I had been in Bennington. I uh, always played sober, always, always, still to this day, never touch a dr- not, a, not a drop of anything, mm-hmm. not a drop of drink, not, not wine, nothing before I play. So I, and because in the fall days, it was so brutal and intensive, the schedule and the touring schedule that I simply, um, I needed to be in control and because your sleep patterns are completely screwed up as going in different time zones and different beds every night and all the traveling and the rest of the band were in such a state that one person had to be the designated driver, yeah. which is me. Yeah. Yeah. So, one, um, one has to keep the, the wheels on the road, both literally right. and metaphorically. Seriously. So I was that person, mm-hmm. you know, so if all else went to hell, I could just, you know, keep the wheel, the ship righted, you know, <laughs> on stage and just make sure just I could just carry it in case it, it, any of the <laughs> parts broke. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, and I guess like also, yeah, like that pre Nirvana kind of alternative, like just like broadly speaking, like the scene before Nirvana kind of like changes everything. Uh, well, actually, I should say that I, I shouldn't say that i wasn't did you feel nirvana when that happened did everything feel kind of different afterwards nirvana's very first tour on nirvana's very first tour they supported us mm-hmm. we had no idea who they were mm-hmm. i remember it was in germany maybe we were playing it was in berlin and i think we were playing in the same venue but on different stages there was a tiny stage and a main stage we were on the main stage and this band i remember them being like bedraggled wastrels you know 
dirty, young, starving, were in the next dressing room. And they were playing on the other stage. And I remember me, Marsha and I taking our rider, like all our sandwiches and our whatever we had in there, and bringing it to them. Because they looked so hungry and they were so sweet. Oh my God. And um, I remember giving them the the food and they were just adorable. And then I remember hearing the music they made because we didn't know. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Those boys can really make a sound. And I just remember sitting, standing there and seeing them and thinking – because it, in the, their early Nirvana was not as tuneful as it later became. Mm-hmm. It was a real thrash. Mm-hmm. And just remember thinking, Jesus Christ, they made such a racket and thinking, what the hell? But then, um, then when set, like, um, Nevermind happened, it, it was everything changed. Yeah, absolutely. No. It, abs- it was a game changer for everything, forever. Mm-hmm. It was a pivotal moment in music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it, 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 talking to people that obviously were in bands prior to it, and then afterwards talk about like even even No Effects talks about like you know Fat Mike talked about how their lives changed once Nirvana happened because it changed the way they were looked at by the media by everything. For me, what happened was it was the perfect sound. Mm-hmm. It was the perfect sound of everything I'd ever wanted to do. It it just had it just everything <laughs> everything I was like I couldn't have I couldn't get enough of it it was it was the perfect like um sort of combination of punk pop songwriting emotion the literal sonic sound of it that they had um, the layers every single thing came together for me in perfection. Mm-hmm. I just, you know. But did you did, did it feel like it ended that kind of perfect world that we were talking about earlier with all these bands kind of existing? Because I, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. I think it just, it just was on the. I think it was part of the leading edge of it. Yeah, changing. I don't think they particularly changed it, but right around that time was when okay they were doing good but then i think the music industry started to go into a decline mm-hmm. of slowly mm-hmm. until the model broke the model that we all knew as musicians in the last century that whole model of the way the music industry worked and what you needed to do and you know the formula for even if, even if you were totally indie even the indie formula everything broke Mm-hmm. started to break until the point that it was like, oh, my God, hit the wall totally. And I think that that w- actually was around the time when it really began to shift. You still had that. You still had Nirvana. You, you had Britpop. Those were like when when the industry was flying as close to the sun as it could be. Mm-hmm. And then. <laughs> yeah, the era of the, like, the $32 CD. And, and like yeah. stuff like that. Like, no, but it's, it's funny because it, it, I think it did for all media. Like it's changed, like the model broke for, for everything. Oh, it's breaking now. Yeah. TV's b- breaking too. Yeah. And, and, and publishing. Yeah. It's changed. Like, and it's funny because like it, it's, but people still want content, right? So it's like, it's yeah. just, it's just now. And, and also the, the, the players at top are still in charge. So they, they managed to adapt <laughs> the companies. Well, you some know. of them have, some, of them, and some right. of them lost their heads. You're right. But the ones you that know. survived got a lot bigger. 
You know? Yeah, well, they all kind of like <sighs> amalgamated into like one thing. Like everything began to it began. There was there would be like a few big hungry monsters that would bite and suck up all the smaller monsters, mm-hmm. and then they would lose their head, and then it would just be one huge like Hydra head motherfucker, yeah. Yeah. you know. And even that, that happened on the indie level too, right? Like in yeah. our, our our mutual label. Uh, of beggars, like you know, became like that on the indie level. Like it's, it is like a powerhouse. Like Adele is on beggars. Yeah, well, that you can't. You, but I mean, to be honest, I have to say that I don't have any regrets. When you read my book, you'll see I, I don't have any regrets. Mm-hmm. But there is one thing that maybe I, I can see where I, I think I made a mistake, but I know why I did it. But I don't regret it because. Whatever it had to lead to this. Um, when I left Beggars and signed with Phonogram with Adult Net, mm-hmm. because I thought a major label would have more power to make my songs commercially successful. Mm-hmm. And I, Martin Mills, has stood the test of time. He was the loveliest man. He is the loveliest. Oh, man. absolutely. He, he was so supportive of artists and so, so never tried to like control really or manipulate mm-hmm. or do what major labels did and he really loved you know he, he he survived because he's just brilliant and passionate and honest and true to the artist and I, in a way I'm sorry that I didn't stick it out there but uh, yeah, like, having an airplane sorry. the dog my dog absolutely hates helicopters <laughs> so Gladys is it a helicopter good yeah, but you can't get it. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I think with uh I think with like Martin Mills, it's it's funny cuz like he he is that person who has been there like you said like for all these different bands and all these different scenes and he's been the guy who's afforded them, you know, opportunities and stuff like that. But Sorry, wait. Oh, no, you no, went wait. Um, because now she can see it. Because I've got a glass roof, so she can see the helicopter through the glass oh, roof. So, <laughs> so she's a pug, just so you can visualize. I've got a pug pap- too. I've got a. I've got. Rudy. No, you don't. Yes, I do, and I also have my tattoo of my old parted pug Tilly tattooed on my arm. Oh my god! I I've had like five pugs in my life, and right now I've got Gladys and Pixie. Oh, mother and daughter. Aww. So she's a Gladys is the daughter, but she's eight years old now, Aww. and she's a black pug. Oh, so cute. And she's a busybody. We have Rudy, who's one eighth beagle, but it's the oh, dominant cute. trait. So he howls. It's oh yeah, like he he screams, and it's it's we at first when we got him as a puppy, we we're like, this is so cute. And oh now, my god. Oh. Um, can, you know what? Um, there are pugs that scream as well because my stepson Rocky has. A, they have a black pug called Pearl, mm-hmm. and she screams whenever oh. she's excited. It's really shocking. Like I'm like, oh my god, why is she doing that? Yeah, I didn't even like dogs until I got until I got like started seeing pugs, and then I was like became obsessed with pugs, and then Me I just too. yeah, it's funny. They're like that dog. Yeah, the healing dog. Yeah, well, they're like cre- they're not like dogs. They're like creatures they're family members and they're 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 just beings like with you know they're not doggy dogs they're part you know they're part of the family they just social they just come into any situation they sit on the chair in restaurants they do all the things that we would do and we treat them like as if they you know are just equal to us yeah (laughs) and they're and are also like pug people aren't necessarily just dog people they are pug people yeah 
So, well, we could talk about pugs. That, that's for our other pug podcast that we're going to start. <laughs> pugs and punk. Pugs and punk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, I think my wife has a pug punk shirt somewhere too. Um, oh, what about pugs, not drugs? Do you have that there? Whoa, no, but that... there's a whole movement here. Called pugs, not drugs. And, um, so top shop, the British store yeah. would sell these t-shirts that say pugs, not drugs. And they would have tea towels for your kitchen, you know, oh like what you dry your dishes on pugs, not drugs. So we have a big sort of pugs, not drugs <laughs> thing in our house. <laughs> I, I, I was straight edge for a long part of my life and that would have been the coolest thing for me. But now I, I smoke a lot of weed. So now I need pugs and nugs as a <laughs> yeah he's a john rob <laughs> yeah i love john rob absolutely he wrote a bio for us yeah he's a straight edge oh absolutely john rob yeah. is uh, one of my favorite people to see last time i saw him was just after i got my ass beaten up in the crowd in the middle of our set at uh liverpool sound city after playing with gold blade i don't know we we're playing with the membranes i'm sorry the membranes oh my god well he um yeah, he's straight edge vegan, and I just yeah. I, I mean, I, he's been like so supportive to me since I've restarted my career with the extricated. Mm-hmm. And he's just he's just ama- been amazing, you know. Having mm-hmm. been so close to us in the fall, you know, there there are sometimes well, there actually hasn't been anybody that's been like well, I probably there, there are a few people that are like I don't want to see bricks in the extricated because I don't want to sully my image of you know. Or there's some yeah. some weird sick loyalty to Marky <laughs> Smith, which is fine, and I'm like, but it's not doing the exactly the same thing. So. No, yeah. Um, but he's but just been really, really there for us. So. He's awesome. He is so awesome. And they supported us. They supported Bricks and the Extricated on our last tour, and it was a great, great, great show. That's amazing. No, he I, he is one of the first people I remember meeting him. And just being like, oh, my God, I've, I've watched that video with you interviewing Oasis on YouTube. And, like, I know you're bad. Like, you're, like, so amazing. And then, yeah, we've gotten to play with him a couple times over the years in, in different things. And, yeah, oh, what a what an awesome person. Like, yeah, another band that I would lump into kind of that, that scene, that sound we were talking about earlier. That it, Membranes, like kind of that sinister yeah. vibe kind of, but totally different sonically. Well, yeah, they're hardcore, aren't they? Yeah, they're definitely like a god, like I like. I talk about like Freddie Mercury level front people. Like he yeah. is one of the greatest front people. I remember seeing him one time, and he took off his shirt. Yeah, and I'm like this guy's like a superhero. Yeah, he looks like a superhero. He's so gorgeous. Yeah, and like the the he age. He's just because he's like straight edge mm-hmm. and vegan. Mm-hmm. He's aging beautifully. He's such a handsome guy. In in this in it just looks. He's gorgeous. He's golden. Yeah, yeah. Well, I he's guess, truly golden. Yeah, that's true. I I would say though, I know some. I know a lot of straight edge vegan people that are not aging that well. So I think a little bit is also genetics at that point too. Oh, I don't know. I can't. I don't have anyone else to compare. Him we to. can't. We can't give it all to tofu and no. uh, diet soda or regular soda. I should say. Or, no, probably, or probably he doesn't no drink soda. soda. Yeah. No way. No soda for him. <laughs> Mind you, also I'd say J- John Joseph from the Cro-Mags is another person who's aging that well, and he also is living the straight edge vegan lifestyle. So maybe we've stumbled onto the fountain of youth. Oh, maybe that. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Let's do a documentary about that. I know. Yeah. It would be a very uh, – it wouldn't be a lot of good catering on set for that documentary, I don't think. Well, you just you just have to go with the flow, wouldn't you? you? Know the flow. Absolutely. <laughs> well, this is down a weird uh, path, and I don't want to keep you too much longer because you've, you've talked amazingly for awesomely, and I there's so much more <laughs> to talk about. Um, one thing I didn't want to hit on um, kind of before – because like I – 
you could just go into the fall and it's like a whole other story. But I guess I, I got to talk about kind of Banda Dratzing and. Oh, the early band. Yeah. When you form that band and like some of the bands you would have played with and cause like, is there recordings? Cause it sounds so awesome in the book and I can't, I've never heard it. So. I don't know whether Lisa has any of the, cause all we ever did was tapes of our rehearsal on a mm-hmm. cassette player. Mm-hmm. Cause we, of course, never had a deal. Never, we only played gig, like two gigs ever, which were like it at Bennington. And then, um, so she might have the recordings from the rehearsal rooms. But of course, those were the songs that Mark Smith heard mm-hmm. when he, decided to bring me over to to the UK. And of course, one of those songs, which was called One More Time for the Record, became the first song I did with The Fall mm-hmm. called Hotel Bladell. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, uh, so, uh, no, so you were saying, like, uh, or sorry, I was saying, what were some of the, like, were you playing at Beddington when you played those shows? Were there other bands that were at the school? Like, were you, did you feel like you were part of a scene? Like, what was the sound you were kind of going for with the band? So we were very garagey. Mm-hmm. So it was a three piece. So mm-hmm. I played bass and sang. Lisa played guitar and she was excellent at bar chords. So it, and we both looked really rockabilly-ish and Klaus Kastenskild was the drummer and he was, um, he ended up He's a painter, so he ended up painting a lot of the fall album covers eventually, and now Lisa and Klaus are married, so it's just so interesting. What a perfect – that was an amazing band then. What a – I know. It was such a great band. So we were like really garagey, punky, and poppy. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and there was another band at school. There were a couple bands because there was a – it was a – the school was really, really arts oriented. So it was an amazing, like, creative writing department. So in my class, uh, for writing was Brett Easton Ellis, Donna Tart, Jonathan Litham, and Jill Eisenstadt. Mm-hmm. All, we were all in the same class. It was like, sort of, we were hothouse, you know? Yeah. And then there were equally amount of musicians and dancers and artists. What, was um, Brett Easton Ellis into punk? I just, out of curiosity. At all, I don't remember or? particularly what he was into, yeah, but okay. um, he was already writing. I mean, I think he had already sold his first book before he came to school. And so when he came to school, everybody knew, like, people were whispering, like, he's already got a publishing deal and he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. He's a genius, you know. So yeah. we were all sort of like kind of in awe of him even then, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I can't remember what he was into, but I think everybody was kind of punky at that school. Everyone was sort of misfit anyway, Mm -hmm. like strangely. Either they were from like the wealthiest families in America or they were there because they were quirky, brilliant artists. So, Mm -hmm. And what like, you know, like I guess, you know, like what a what a graduating class that would have been with all of you in there, you know, all going into like, you know, other fields (laughs) and stuff. But we're we're like – were there like – did you feel, I guess, of more of a dr- – the New York scene or the, was there any – I guess, what were there any of the other bands in New York that you were kind of a fan of at that point? Like were there like doing that some sort of style that you guys were trying to go for in Banda Dratzing? Um, you know, I can't remember specifically – I mean, I think the Tom Tom Club or yeah. – the, the, I think they might have just – been around i mean there were things like and i I mean i don't really i didn't really categorize people by where what what scene they were from and what city what city i was just accepting of everything so we we would have everything from like um 
you know, visage or, um, uh, what was it called? Um, you know, um, Boy George's band, like, Culture what Club. were they called? Culture Club, Culture Club, um, Duran Duran, all that kind of British chart music, yeah. as well as like, um, you know, Red Cross, Tom Tom Club, whatever, which, you know, um, I didn't even, wasn't even really aware of who came from where. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, like I, Bricks, as I said, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. I would love to do a part two. In the future, we can just talk, you know, everything else, because this has been an unbelievable chance to kind of find out about, you know, your formative music years. Oh, my God. No, it's my. Yeah, let's absolutely do a part two. We could talk forever. You've been For, like one of my favorite people to talk to. <laughs> that is, uh, <laughs> and really you're a pop person. Well, I tell you, this is uh, you, well, you are a, a massive, ma you know, uh, now reading your book, I have. Even more respect for you. Had tons of respect for you before, but even more respect for you. Um, you know, and I'm I'm not just saying this because, of course, we're doing this in light of the book. But this is one of my favorite books of of the year, if not my favorite book of the year. And and what a personal journey to kind of share with everyone. Oh my, bless you. So thank uh, you so much. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you, Bricks. And as you can hear right there, we're going to have a part two. You know, it's, it's, it's promised, and that was an amazing conversation to get to have. Thank you so much, Shara, for setting that up, and thank you, Bricks, so much for the time. And, uh, yeah, check out that book. It is, once again, as I say there, probably my favorite book so far this year that I've read. Um, and, and, once again, you know, it is it is a, a tough read, so be forewarned at, at times. Um, and you can pick that up just about everywhere, and it's on Faber and Faber, and uh, it's called the Rise, the Fall, and the Rise by Bricks Smith Start. So check out that book when you get the chance. Anyway, speaking of checking things out, uh, next week on the show, you can check out an incredible episode, of a long episode, I'm going to forewarn you, but it's a, a fantastic episode with Charday and Greg of Not Dead Yet Fest. Greg also plays in Shit. And it's a cool conversation. It is a conversation. I had a chance to kind of sit down and catch up with these two people in a long time. And I've known them both for a very long time. And we get into, you know, a, one of the coolest, if you're not familiar with it, Not Dead Yet Fest is one of the coolest DIY punk festivals going right now. And they've just announced their huge 2016 lineup. I'm sure you can find out lots of information about it online, but it's kind of being headlined by a, a, a super show. I would say a super show, uh, featuring, uh, the mighty gloss and the mighty turnstile playing on one bill together. And we, we get into a, a cool conversation next week. That's, it's a really, really fun one so that is it for this week uh, once again please go over to davynabraham.com and check out all the you know uh, other episodes and email blah blah, blah, blah social media atla for damien and uh the, check out that tumblr turn out a punk uh facebook turn out a punk and uh yeah please also uh check out wrestling fans especially check out clobbering time this week Featuring Nikki 
from the band nothing coming in to talk about his ecw memories and there it is a it is a gnarly episode we have some some fun stuff there is some great behind the scenes uh kind of ecw uh uh party legends they have to put it put it uh in a term that's probably now copywritten by a certain company but uh anyway it is good it is good that will do it for this week. Go out there and make your own culture. Check out Footnotes. I'll see you over there with Chris. We're going to have a lot to talk about this week. This will be a fun one. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And, uh, yeah, um, bye. <laughs>